0: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well,
0: Margaret, things are really heating up on the campaign trail with the Iowa caucuses happening February 1st. And healthcare has emerged as an interesting sparring point in the Democratic race.
1: Well, the GOP candidates are still talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, uh, with so far no notable alternative health plan to propose. And there's a dividing line between the two top contenders in the Democratic race, Hillary Clinton calling for the ACA to be kept in place and improved upon. But Bernie Sanders is touting his long-held support for a single-payer solution a Medicare-for-all approach, and he's just not backing off of that. He,
0: Senator Sanders is, not and He's introduced bills in Congress promoting the creation of the American Health Security. Act, which would lay the foundation for a single-payer health coverage to be set up in each state. It's an idea they've tried to advance in Vermont, but found the cost would be too prohibitive for the state to shoulder the expenses without the federal government to support
2: it.
1: That's right, and we've had some great interviews with leaders in Vermont on that subject. But Hillary Clinton makes the point that removing the Affordable Care Act and replacing it with something even more distasteful to conservatives in Congress would be just about impossible to pull off. And although, according to at least one survey, two thirds of Americans would support some kind of single payer health system, it seems more theoretical than real at I the think moment.
0: That, and meanwhile, under the Affordable Care Act, the uh, third round of open enrollments underway, and the latest number of eighteen million Americans are signed up for coverage through the insurance exchanges. And the president is also trying to sweeten the pot for those states who've held out on expanding Medicaid for more of their poor uninsured uh, residents.
1: I thought this was a very uh, creative and strategic approach. The White House is considering extending the 100% coverage for the Medicaid expansion for a full three years for those states who sign on now. So it'll be very interesting to see if this latest development or offer entices more of those reluctant governors to change their tune.
0: I think it's a great move. And when we look at uh, a state like Louisiana, uh, where we've noted that the new governor reversed his predecessor's refusal to expand Medicaid, it makes a pretty powerful statement when you see Some 300,000 previously uninsured residents becoming instantly eligible for health coverage and health care.
1: And the president has initiated some significant changes in the way that Americans interact with government during his tenure. And our guest today has a truly unique perspective on that. Anish Chopra served as the president's first chief technology officer tasked with
0: the job of bringing the U.S. government into the 21st century with technology. Since leaving the White House, Mr. Chopra has uh, launched a new venture and has come out with a new book, Innovative States, which explores how government can really spur innovation through the use of new technologies. Really looking forward to having him back on the show, Margaret.
1: And Laurie Robertson stops by, the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Anish Chopra in just a moment. But
0: first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning women who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant to avoid certain Latin American and Caribbean countries, if possible, to avoid exposure to the mosquito-borne virus Zilka, which is directly related to birth defects in children, specifically microcephaly, babies being born with smaller heads. Brazil has seen the largest outbreak of the virus where upwards of a million people may have been exposed, leading to births of thousands of babies who appear to have been affected. In addition to Brazil, the CDC warns women of childbearing age who are pregnant or seeking to be to avoid Ecuador, El Salvador, Bolivia, Barbados, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, St. Martin and others. Meanwhile, pregnant women hoping to have smarter babies with better brain health over the long haul of childhood might want to amp up their fish consumption. A study out of Spain showed women who ate at least three healthy servings of fish per week during pregnancy had kids with healthier brains. However, the cautionary tale, too much of the high-fat fish, such as swordfish and tuna, could raise the risk of mercury buildup. Pregnancy is not a good open when melanomas are found. A study found that skin cancer found during pregnancy or within a year after tends to be more lethal. Those diagnosed during or soon after pregnancy were significantly more likely to have tumors spread to other organs and tissues and were also found more likely to have the cancer recur after treatment. Vice President Joe Biden was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, asking the world's economic leaders to join in the president's moonshot for cancer. Biden, who lost his 46-year-old son Beau to brain cancer last year, set out his plans at the World Economic Forum meeting of international cancer experts in Davos. So-called combination therapy is increasingly seen as central to fighting tumors as scientists unlock the different genetic factors driving cancer cell growth. But bringing such cocktails to market can often be slow and costly. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Anish Chopra, co-founder and uh, executive vice president of Hunch Analytics, dedicated to better use of data analytics. Including in healthcare, Mr. Chopra was appointed by President Obama in 2009 as the nation's first chief technology officer, where he presided over the initiation of technology use in healthcare, government systems, and homeland security. Prior to that, Mr. Chopra served as Virginia's fourth secretary of technology. He's a prolific writer on the subject of improving health systems and healthcare through better technology, including his most recent book, Innovative State. How new technologies can transform government. He earned his undergraduate degree at Johns Hopkins and his master's in public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. Anish, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's great, and uh, you know, I think it's uh, sort of axiomatic that the, the the internet started to change the way we do business, but the U.S. government remained stuck in its old ways. But uh, nobody but uh, President Obama had really come into office with the sort of the proposition that he was going to bring government up to speed. And he hired you as the nation's first chief technology officer. And I, I'm not sure our listeners really comprehend the enormity of the task you assumed when you started off. Maybe uh, sort of paint a picture for us of uh, the guy who was tasked with bringing the White House into the 21st century. Well, what, what
1: did it look like back then? White horse and all.
3: <laughs> the federal government as a whole had not kept pace with the private sector in not just the adoption, but the use of modern technologies. And so uh, really, you know, didn't have the capacity or at least the basic uh, adoption and use was sort of step one. We, we kind of knew what we were starting from. Step two, though, what problems are we trying to solve mm-hmm. and how might we fully harness the full power of the Internet? As a method of solving the problem, your landscape moves way beyond whether or not the software in your office is up to speed. So it had a lot more opportunity for improvement than just the frustration of saying, gosh, our systems are old. But last, into a cultural mindset that was much more insular and lacked faith, we could in fact find a way to tap into all these capabilities. And I'd say the biggest challenge we faced was breaking this proverbial brick wall that was constraining our thinking as to the art Mm -hmm. of the possible.
1: Well, Anish, when you were last on with us, it was 2011, and your technology programs were just starting to take hold in the White House. Health reform was moving forward, uh, in part based on a mantra that the power of health information technology could help transform health care in the country. And you said to us then that what this was requiring was a solid infrastructure infrastructure and putting some rules of the road in place. Tell us some of the areas that really lived up to those early expectations and maybe some areas where transformation has been more difficult to achieve than you might have imagined. Well,
3: we tend to overestimate the potential of technology and innovation to have an impact in the short run, but we often underestimate its potential in the long run. Hmm looking back we had a few very critical decisions that had to be made all of which are now made first and foremost the question was how do you move from manila folders to a digital version of the manila folder to the underlying data that resides in the manila folder being accessible not just to providers and uh, caregivers in general but to patients and to the applications and services they trust to help them make sense of their data. There now is a technical means by which one can express health data across applications. Meaningful use was always envisioned to be a three-step process. Step one was largely around adoption and digitization. Step two was about moving it around. But stage three had always been envisioned as that place where the underlying health data could be used and reused to make the system work, especially as we transition to value-based payment. The FHIR API is now ready for people to implement. This is the open data standard, that infrastructure I was describing. And we have regulations that say that that infrastructure has to be opened up to the patient or to the patient's designated apps. The biggest failure is the lack of adoption or demand for this infrastructure and these rules to be used in population health activity since 2011 every medicare beneficiary has had the ability to give you three years of their claims history Mm -hmm. it seems to me that as we transition to value-based payment the demand for this information is only growing But for some reason, those on the front lines who are feeling the pain of wanting to serve uh, haven't yet gotten to the point culturally where they've begun asking or demanding that this infrastructure and these rules be, be put to their best use.
0: Well, I do want to sort of talk a little bit about your book, which is a great read, Innovative State and How New Technologies Can Transform Government. You advance the notion that in spite of skepticism about government's ability to foster innovation, government does uh, spur innovation all the time. And you make the case that the key to real transformation lies in public-private partnerships. And there are all these great examples of the president's uh, initiatives, uh, wireless initiatives, the Blue Button initiatives. Susanna Fox, the current uh, chief technology officer, is is also launching an Invent Health initiative, a sort of a maker movement to spur innovation in the private sector. So talk to our listeners about the successes that have been spawned from some of these initiatives.
3: Well, I am in Washington, D.C. during this conversation, and we are literally days away from the next iteration of snowmageddon (laughs) let's use the weather as the analogy if you were to ask the average person on the street how dynamic is the weather marketplace it seems like every day there's a new weather app the level of vibrancy and innovation in the private weather industry is just remarkable However, most of the public may not realize that the underlying data, all the sensors and satellites and information that inform those private weather models come from the federal government, mm-hmm. a single agency. Right. Yeah. And that was the analogy that we felt, which is if, if the Department of Commerce, which oversees the agency in question, was responsible for all retail weather delivery methods, the pace of innovation would have been severely curtailed because we would have been waiting for, quote-unquote, the next version of government-weathered services delivery. But opening up the data and uh, and allowing private entrepreneurs to have access to the information and to put them to better use gives us this public-private model. Most people think of government using two tools in the toolkit. One is spending money, on goods and services or issuing regulation to manage the private sector such that we achieve a broader social mission there's now a third tool in the toolkit and that happens to be opening up the government and enabling this handshake and handoff the government's agreed by shaking hands that it's going to make more and more data sets like the weather data set open for the public and as more and more of our assets in life become digital it is easier and easier to transfer that information so but more and more folks in the private sector are taking that underlying data and putting it in more appropriate context to give you exactly the right advice when you need it most and that's the story that's happening in health energy education markets as more and more of these underlying data sets are open and the business conditions are in place so that there's an incentive to use them to make the systems work better.
1: Well, Anisha, there's also been just the the uh, sort of presentation over the years of big challenges, right? So you know, we had the first rollout uh, of the Affordable Care Act and enrollment, and it was so painfully difficult. But that, that got right-sized as uh, time went on. More worrisome, we've had health system data breaches as a constant threat. And then, of course, uh, Meaningful Use, uh, with CMS announcing that uh, Meaningful Use was going to have to be changed. Maybe you could just take a minute to tell us this was such a push to move things forward. What happened? Why was Meaningful Use stage two so difficult? And what do you think the best thinking is about changing that going forward?
3: When uh, we joined the administration, I was on the president's transition team. And it was an amazing group. Uh, My friend, uh, Todd Park, uh, Danny Weitzner, who ultimately became my deputy in the White House, uh, Farzad Mostashari, who was the National yeah, Coordinator for sure. Health IT, um, we had penned a memo advising on the Meaningful Use Program's rollout. The underlying story is the shift in payment towards value-based care. We had anticipated that that was high on the president's agenda, and it was critical that that be the most important driver of everything else. The specifics on IT and what do you buy and how do you buy it, all that is table stakes on this larger story about we're fundamentally changing the delivery system. And the tension was timing these movements. So the pace with which doctors who practice medicine every day, who are thinking about practicing in a different way The vision was that as more and more of those demand signals from the payers came forward, it would influence provider requests of the data. So it's almost as important in a value-based system to say, who are the 20 patients that are not scheduled to see me tomorrow that should be? Mm -hmm. As it is to say, how can I best prep for the 20 who are coming in?
1: Exactly.
3: We had to first go... Manila to digital, digital to data, and then open the data, you wouldn't have to replace the guts of your electronic health record in order to swap in an app that can give you the list of 20 Mm -hmm. patients to call that that aren't coming in for the appointment. And in fact, that is where we are today. When Andy Slavitt made comments about, quote unquote, meaningful use is going to change, that really should not have been news because Congress had already passed the doc fix. And that declared meaningful use was going to fold into something larger. But underlying the comments was a very clear statement. The API, the escalator in terms of capability, will move unabated. What might change is instead of paying you for checking the box that you use technology, that will shift to paying you for actually delivering the outcomes. But mm-hmm. by the way, that was always right. the plan. So so sometimes meaningful use stage two is sort of stuck in the middle because it does a heck of a lot more in preparation for payment reform. But if you're not yet feeling the pain that you have to change the way you practice medicine, it might feel like a bit annoying. If you're part of a value-based system and you're seeing the patient uh, at a time when their blood pressure is changing and that triggers an alert back to their primary care doctor and the overall system avoids an unnecessary hospitalization and you're rewarded for it, maybe you won't be as irritated having to collect that blood pressure reading. So I think to put this in context, I don't think of this as lessons learned, we failed, let's change, but rather we had to move these two massive changes in the system that are not exactly in sync timing wise, mm-hmm. but were fits and starts getting there and the end game is clear.
0: We're speaking today with Anish Chopra, co-founder and executive vice president of Hunch Analytics, dedicated to better use of data analytics. Mr. Chopra was appointed by President Obama in 2009 as the nation's first chief technology officer and is the author of the critically acclaimed Innovative State. Uh, Anish, you've described data as a rocket fuel of innovation, and everywhere you turn, big analytics uh, are being touted as uh, most important factor in healthcare delivery we 've unfortunately created sort of a tower of babel of, of health data. It varies so much across the country, and tell our listeners of what 's lacking in the way uh, that we share and use data that needs to be fixed.
3: Well, we have to execute the plan. There has been two theories on how to unleash data. theory number one is what I would call enterprise out. This system would stitch together its internal data sets first and then begin to tackle the frustrations of connecting to others. Kind of what we've put in place, there's actually a fundamentally different model, which is patient in. And what that says is that everywhere there is a database that includes health information, for example, one of the most popular healthcare downloads happens to be the Walmart medical expense summary file. Tax season comes around. You want to tell your accountant all the money you've spent on health-related activities. Walmart separates your healthcare care purchases from the rest and hmm. gives you that equivalent of a receipt. And millions of Americans have downloaded digital copies of that file. So if you're sitting at the patient's shoulder, you know, in 1994, MIT had done a beautiful research effort called the the Guardian Angel, and it asked the question, how might we build a healthcare delivery system from the patient in, sitting on their shoulder as a guardian angel? And now with most and more, more and more of this information in digital form, if I'm the patient, I have usernames and passwords to like a dozen places that store what I would consider to be health related information in digital form that relatively easily could be combined and interpreted for advice. What we need to do is finish the job. Meaningful Use 3, and that which will continue, says that the EHR systems must allow patients access to their health data in machine-readable form and through an application or service of the patient's choice. The way we address the Tower of Babel is we simply hand over the equivalent of a valet key to each of my online accounts to that proverbial guardian angel will unlock all those original source systems, pull it in, and interpret that information in a manner that helps you make smarter decisions. And that's coming. That's the idea, the rise of a digital health advisor that's there for you when you need him or her, acting in my best interest, not that of the sponsor or the uh, organization that is providing the service to me.
1: Well, avatars or guardian angels. They both sound pretty comforting to me. And Anish, uh, you did so much good during your government service and you are continuing to make great contributions. And we would love to give you a moment to tell us uh, what you're doing in the private sector. You're the co founder of Hunch Analytics, uh, which is seeking to launch entities that improve uh, data usage. Those guardian angels might be embedded there someplace. You've described this enterprise as a hatchery for innovative ideas. Tell us a little bit more about this venture who you're targeting, how it differs from all the other thousands of new health startups that are out there in the marketplace.
3: Um, I chose to run for lieutenant governor of Virginia because I felt the public-private interface that we described earlier would come not just from the federal government activity, but for the markets that need the most help, health, energy, education, that they would be done at the state level. And while I was unsuccessful in my bid, I was blessed to have a number of supporters that have been pretty successful in the technology sector, including uh, my partner, uh, a gentleman by the name of Sanju Bansal, who had co-founded a very successful business intelligence company. And what he had decided to do is, let's incubate startups, not fund other people's ideas, but let's incubate startups to take full advantage of open government data sets that have not been put to their fullest and best use. And... We thought health and education markets might be the most important areas to tackle. We would then form a company, recruit a management team, and spin them off. We've done three projects, two of which have matured into companies. The first of those was to take the database from healthcare.gov of all the plans and to work with those that have a consumer opt-in marketing database to deliver personalized offers so that individuals throughout the country might be more inclined to sign up for health insurance than if they just saw a generic ad on TV or on the Internet. We had almost a million people uh, connect to those who could help them make the right choices. We also mapped the unemployed veteran skills gap in an interesting R&D partnership with firms like LinkedIn, Workday, and Monster to demonstrate the art of the possible if we could translate jobs that are in the economy Uh, down to their skills level, because a skill level review might allow for better matching, especially in veterans. I am absolutely working through a third venture, which now is a company called NavHealth, uh, specifically to bring Medicare ACOs to life. Very little is done to bring that data to life. We enrich that information with other open government data and help to make the touch points for patients smarter. So if you call the call center at the hospital, they know more about you because of the fact that they've gotten that ACO data that can be smarter about how they answer your questions. We want to make those touch points smarter by bringing all of that open government data to life
0: We've been speaking today with uh, Anish Chopra, the nation's first chief technology officer, co-founder of Hunch Analytics and author of Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government. You can learn more about his work by going to InnovativeState.com or you can follow him on Twitter at Anish Chopra. Anish, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Conversations on healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Laurie Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week?
4: Democratic presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have both made misleading claims about Sanders's healthcare plan. Clinton and her campaign, including daughter Chelsea, have claimed that Sanders wants to dismantle Medicare and private insurance and that he would turn over your health insurance to governors. Sanders would get rid of Medicare as we know it, but replace the entire current health insurance system with a new single-payer system in which everyone has insurance paid through tax dollars. The latest bill he introduced on this topic in Congress called for the states to administer their own health plans, but also called for a federal board to approve such plans and take over if a state refused to participate. But Sanders has been misleading, too. He claimed in the January 17th Democratic debate that he wasn't going to, quote, tear up the Affordable Care Act but instead, quote, move on top of that to a single-payer universal health care system. But his plan actually calls for replacing the ACA and all other current forms of insurance, including private insurance and Medicaid, with a new universal plan administered by the federal government. There would be no more private insurance marketplaces with tax credits and subsidies as we have now under the ACA. Instead, everyone would have the same public health coverage paid for with tax dollars, not insurance premiums. Sanders' 2013 legislation proposing a similar plan was referred to committee and never came to a vote.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Depression is extremely common among adolescents in this country, but it's often hard to differentiate between teen angst and a clinical condition that requires more immediate intervention. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24-year-olds, a population that almost ubiquitously uses texting as a form of communication
5: is a fantastic way to communicate with young people, but it has this one weird side effect where uh, we're the only brands that they text with. You know, you really only text with your family and friends. And so because people texted with us, it felt really comfortable. And um, they started sending us things that were shocking, like, I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I'm being bullied.
0: Nancy Lublin is CEO of Crisis Text Line, an instant texting service designed to encourage teens in crisis to reach out for help. All they have to do is text the numbers 741-741.
5: So if you text us and the counselor on the other side is not working from a phone, there on a screen. When messages come in with certain keywords in them, they automatically get tagged as high risk. So um, if you're at risk for suicide, you're automatically bumped up in the queue and you're like a code red. You get flagged in our system.
0: They receive an average of 15,000 texts per day from kids experiencing everything from typical teen dilemmas, such as a fight with a boyfriend, to kids contemplating suicide
5: or And the supervisor would determine whether they have, A, a plan, and B, the means. Then we will trigger an active rescue.
0: Crisis text line, an instant, age-appropriate intervention, available free of charge and 24-7, to give kids in crisis a lifeline and lead them to help they need. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
2: And I'm Mark Maselli.
1: Peace and health.